What is the greatest film ever made? Have a guess. The Dolce Vita. Con Air. What's Vanishing Point? It's just one of the best American movies ever made. Phantom Menace is the best Star Wars yet. I like Spider-Man. though beans all the protein all the fiber yeah beans people really don't like lima beans it seems but i've always been a fan lima beans are shit. i love things. them so much uh chickpeas let's go with some chickpeas chickpeas are good have... soybeans i like uh edamame you know very good i don't think you can go wrong with black beans black beans are really good at um mm. with korean barbecue oh i bet that's awesome it's a black good beans mix. are all-purpose beans they work with pretty much every kind of food like Mexican, Korean, you name it. It like fuck black beans. That goes with it. Yeah, it's true. Don't like uh, don't like kidney beans or anything though. No. Oh, kidney beans are fine. I don't have an issue with those. I eat them pretty much every day. You know who uh, who else had kidney beans every day? Uh, old timey hobos from the thirties <laughs> and forties, which is the time period that Sky Captain the World Tomorrow takes place in. Good segue. <laughs> uh, can we be sponsored by pinto beans like try <laughs> oh, be pinto good. beans they go great with newspapers all right all right not even joking every day at work my lunch consists of uh, a cup of uh, boiled lentils sriracha sauce and kidney beans just those mixed together one cup of that and it's a super duper amount of fiber it's fantastic that's all i'm saying this is the point of the podcast i just want everyone to know beans are your friends you should have more legumes in your diet I'll keep this in the intro over the Iris Law stuff. Good, yeah. Okay. So we can we can make all of our fans abandon us immediately. Like, oh, I already know about beans. They talk about them all the time. <laughs> I already know about beans. Fuck this podcast. Someone is sitting in his house, like, eating a cold can of beans. Like, I know about this already. Can we like please put an educational tag on just this episode? We've never Lots done of our... presents facts about beans. I really like the the one specific person who's listening to us. Not only already loves beans, but hates being reminded that they love beans. It's not like they're excited. Someone else is like beans are good. They're they're not that kind of fan. They're like fuck you. I like beans first, kind of person. Oh, it's like when I'm listening to like a cult movie podcast, and they're like, "We're gonna talk about Rocky Horror tonight." Oh, fuck you. <laughs> That's your beans. <laughs> Can I be our new sign-off? That's your beans. I, that's Not your everybody. beans. Uh, boy, oh, fuck. What was it on Nerdist? Uh, enjoy your burrito? Enjoy your burrito. That could that be, be ours. ours. Ours is beans. And you know what's in a burrito? <laughs> beans, so. Pack your beans. I don't, I, you know. That's it. We can make a really terrible spaghetti western where that's what the guy says as he rides into the sunset. <laughs> Pack your beans. And he just jumps <laughs> off. There's someone very confused, like, why didn't he say that before he shot the guy at the bean factory? <laughs> that would have been a good one-liner. It doesn't make sense as he leaves town. I'm your Hucklebean? I don't know. He's got to workshop it. <laughs> the end of Shane, but it's about beans. <laughs> Come back and eat your beans, Shane. Come back. This is a better show. I like this all-bean show that we're doing now instead of movies. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact, the reason Shane is limp in that last shot isn't because he's dying, just bad beans. Bad beans. <laughs> name my uh my indie band, Bad Beans. We're Mike and the Bad Beans. Alright. Is everyone ready to talk about Sky Captain and the world of no beans? I guess so, if we have to leave the right. beans behind. What if I mean if we don't know, that could have been Totenkopf's ultimate plot, beans. Totenkopf's replace all of mankind with beans. 
Dude, That's the whole plan. Dude, just the Obermensch fruit. He puts all the animals in a spaceship so he can just get them away from the beans. They're eating too many beans. All right, I think we've run the show into the ground. Let's get going. Just start the goddamn show, Cody. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie. And tonight, we're going to be flying the forgotten skies of 2004 for Sky Captain and the world of tomorrow. I'm your host, Cody, and I'm going to be relinquishing my captaining duties today. God damn it, Cody, shut the hell up! Because I'm taking the wheel on this one. I actually just forgot what the rest of my jokes were, so I'm very glad you stepped in. Oh, way to fucking pull the curtain back at that way. It was so smooth. It seemed so planned. And then you're like, you know what? Nope, folks, I just got to tell you, I fucked up majorly. With the magic of editing, folks, we can actually remove long pauses. I actually say about six words per minute. With the magic of editing, we could not start this episode with six minutes of bean talk, but mm, we're not doing that. So, Jamie? Eh, As much as it pains me to say this, enough about beans. Because tonight is very special. We are not recording a regular bop, or a bop in a movie, or a mini bop, or another episode of Bop Secret, our beloved series wherein Cody spoils the plots of movies days before their release. I can see the future, and it is grim. He thinks Mike uploads those play along. On the contrary, this is the first episode of a brand new series on Box Office Pulp, How I Learned to Love the Bombs. Now, as I'm sure everybody listening to this is aware of, Movie criticism and the discourse around movies in general is skewed very much to the negative side of things in the years since we all packed up our belongings and relocated our lives to the internet like we were in the middle of the Dust Bowl. And I think a big part of that negativity has always been geared towards films that have done poorly, either financially or critically or both. People love a good train wreck. They're very easy to pick on. Yeah, and I, I think I can say with some certainty that everyone on this podcast has at least one or two memories from their early teens of spending way too much time rebutting somebody on a message board who swore that one of their favorite movies were trash, only to be answered with that eternal refrain, if it were so good, why didn't everybody like it? But our connection with art, and especially with the movies we love, is a deeply personal thing, something that's often really hard to communicate to other people. And sometimes one man's trash is another man's Blade Runner. One of the things that was most important to us whenever we started Box Office Pulp was to flirt with negativity whenever it was appropriate, but to always, always, always champion the art that takes chances, makes mistakes, and gets messy. To quote one of my childhood's favorite freckle bitches, now, Tonight, we're not here to revise history. We're not here to tell you you're wrong. We're just here to talk about the bombs we love. Like my MB delivery there. Study from the master. I just really enjoy that we have a segment that starts with, we're not here to tell you you're wrong. And I I just had flashbacks to our episode called You're Wrong, where we told everyone (laughs) that we're wrong. I think we've matured a lot as people since then. No, I stand by that episode. Go watch Oz, the great and powerful people. Agree. I mean, I agree, but still. Everyone was wrong in those instances. And whenever we first talked about doing this show, I think the obvious pick for the first episode that we all sit along with pretty much no debate was Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. A movie uh, sorry, that... you have to say it like that Futurama guy. And the world of tomorrow! 
Sky Captain. Why is it a horse? <laughs> Brought to you by smoking. <laughs> that might be true. Can I say, I, uh, Jamie, that was a beautiful, beautiful intro. And I love how it's a beautiful intro for a movie that features Giovanni Ribisi chewing gum loudly. He chews gum harder than Pete Carroll, which is amazing. I didn't know that was a thing that happened outside of the world of football. His cheeks are built for chewing gum. I, it's like it's what he was put on. It, more important than Avatar. <laughs> it's a weird combo. If we can take a minute to talk about his facial structure, because that's what everyone came to the show for. It's, he has a, a fairly pointy chin, but wide cheeks. It, it goes into unexpected geometry. And oh, he's gum a freak. Chewing, is it all? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Mike. <laughs> I'm going to get murdered by Frank Grillo. Mike is going to die by the hands. <laughs> oh, don't say that. He's got the fucking Church of Scientology behind him. He will erase Mike's ass. It was good knowing you. I feel like you will sue though, him in England. I feel like Rubisi, though, would kill me like um, some kind of like Japanese demon where he just like he fuses into like my flesh or something and takes me over and suffocates me. Mike just wakes up one day chewing and he doesn't know why. Oh, he shot me, essentially. Oh, God. Okay, okay, just to digress even further for a second, do you think if they listen to this, they're... <laughs> we would cut to the inside of Scientology's Hydra stronghold, a man picks up the phone and says, It is time to activate the other sister. I'm very distracted because I went to uh, his, his wiki page, and his profile picture looks like they caught him in the act of chewing gum. He looks slightly concerned, like, ah, oh, they caught me. Mouth is slightly open. It's not a flattering picture. I'm not sure why this is the one they went with. I like to think that that's Ravizi's version of Brad Pitt always shoving food into his face and everything. Like, I can only act if I'm chewing gum. It focuses I me. I, I blame myself for this. Also, one last comment about all of this. You know how in movies, actors complain about having to use, like, spit buckets, or if they, like, eat the food on set, they have to do 40 takes, so they end up eating a ham sandwich, like, 40 times? Just imagine all the gum that man must have destroyed during Sky Captain. Like, they were just feeding him packs of juicy fruit. Pallets of it. Pallets of juicy fruit. Goddamn Scientology. Pallets of juicy fruit. But we're I'm not trying here to decide if I like that as a band name or not, and I don't think I do. <laughs> we're not here to talk about juicy fruit or beans. We're here to talk about Sky Captain, a movie that has a very complicated legacy, especially when looked at today. It's a movie that many attribute to basically changing the way movies were filmed. Like we wouldn't really have big tent full, big tent pole uh, summer action movies and, and stuff with such creative flourishes as what JJ uh, Abrams and Ryan Johnson have been doing with star Wars and with what the MCU has been doing. Like we wouldn't have that without sky captain, but paradoxically the movie outside of movie buff circles is a punchline. It's something for a how did this get made episode. It's a cracked article. And that saddens me tremendously. Because in addition to be, being one of the great tragedies of modern Hollywood, Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow is also a cool goddamn movie. Like, I dare anyone to watch this give it a fair shake, and not walk away with a smile on their face. I might be able to do that because the existence of this movie means we got Sin City a Dame to Kill for. 
So cosmically, I'm a little mad at Sky Captain. That is like blaming Albert Einstein for the atomic bomb. <laughs> Sometimes history doesn't work out the way you plan, Cody. Damn you, butterfly effect. <laughs> but I'm very curious. Uh, did you guys see this immediately on its release, or was this something you discovered in later years? I don't think anyone saw this on immediate release. Yeah, I, I, I there used to be a uh, trailer show on E! Oh, oh yes! Um, I remember getting very excited when new episodes of that would come out. Like a new oh, trailer? Was... Oh boy! Yes, it was just called Coming Attractions or something. I, I think. Yeah. And I used to oh, fucking because yeah. this was before YouTube and shit. I used to record episodes on VHS so that way I could rewatch trailers. <laughs> awesome! I wish I still uh, had those. I mean, oh, I used to boy. listen. I used to watch through uh, Byron Allen's terrible celebrity interview show just to watch trailers. I mean, think about it. People went to go see movies back in like 99 so they could see the trailer for Phantom Menace and then just leave the film. <laughs> we're in a day and age where like people were that desperate for their teasers. Like, oh, I'll do anything. I'll pay $9 to go see a movie I don't care about just for that sweet Phantom Menace action. Uh, I think we've talked about on the show how each of us sat through Temptation Island as children to get that fucking Spider-Man trailer. Because yep. we were not going to watch that in a quick time thumbnail. It was Spider-Man. Special. We had, to watch, we had to watch it on our shitty 250p televisions. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, God, oh, the memories, just thinking of that fucking show. But uh, yeah, I remember seeing the ads for Sky Captain, but I don't believe it ever played in a theater anywhere near my house. Uh, I, I only actually got a hold of it because, uh, there was a either Hollywood video or movie gallery. One of those now defunct video stores had a giant surplus of Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow tapes, uh, wow. DVDs. Uh, and, and then when they were done renting them, you know, they, they get a surplus of these things. They would rent them for like the first month. And after that, they would just sell off the extra ones. Uh, so there were copies of Sky Captain sitting around this movie gallery for like $5. They were just trying to bargain bin them and get them out there because they had 30 copies sitting around <laughs> hogging up all their marquee space so it's one of those i have no idea what this is i saw a trailer like years ago for it i might as well buy this so uh, mine was more blind luck just even getting into this than uh premeditated hey this is up my alley i should find out if i really like it or not i think i had the experience of many people which is seeing the trailer the trailer is awesome it's still one of the best trailers oh, yeah. ever. being really excited and then just it either didn't play near you or you just didn't get a chance to go because it was in theaters for about five fucking seconds. Um, I just kind of forgot. Uh, didn't think about it at all. I, you know, my, my VHS tapes were packed away, so I didn't get to rewatch that trailer again. I remember it was in an episode that also had the Hellboy trailer. Um, oh, man. What a time to be alive. <laughs> and I was flipping through channels somewhere someone who had i think like cinemax and they were fucking premiering sky captain and i was able to remember the movie's existence this was in like mid 2005 that's impressive went, oh that thing i was excited for and yes it was like on cinemax because it wasn't good enough for like hbo <sighs> they always knew like when a movie's relegated to just cinemax over hbo or showtime it's like a level of interest and quality and then stars is just like fuck it Oh, 2000 stars was just, it was like the cursed ground from Pet Cemetery. It's like, oh, they gave Crash a TV show. Why? 
Oh, just all these 20th Century Fox fucking tentpole pictures. Jesus, sometimes dead is better, guys. <laughs> oh, I feel like such a dork now, because I swear to God, I picked this up on DVD as soon as it was out. <laughs> this was a film my father and I were absolutely dying to see, just based on the strength of those trailers and the occasional TV ad we'd catch. Because uh, my dad was a huge old-time sci-fi fan, loved Buck Rogers, loved uh, Silver Age Marvel comics, the Fleischer Superman shows. He pretty much raised me on those original shorts. So it was aesthetic he and I had a huge appreciation of. And whenever we watched it, it kind of left me cold. Like, it wasn't quite the movie I wanted. And I think I had a very similar reaction to it that a lot of people had at the time which we'll get into that a little bit more later but it's a movie that very quickly began growing on me like i would watch it again and again every time i would notice something i didn't notice before like just how painstaking the cgi backgrounds are just what a pitch perfect old timey bickering couple performance paltrow and jude law yeah, just the significance of Laurence Olivier being brought back from the dead <laughs> as the movie's villain, an actor I hadn't even heard of whenever I first watched the film. And in the years since, yes, it's a movie that has aged like fine wine. A lot of the things that were goofy and ridiculous and not quite right about it make perfect sense now just because the world was not ready. I think part of it is the film is designed to be so old school that Aging it only makes it feel more authentic. Yeah, I think so. Like, uh, even even at the time, I, I think just the fact that everything was on that kind of digital backlot stood out. Like you could tell, like okay, these are actors, and everything around them is essentially a painting. And it never really felt correct to me at the time. Like even watching it that first time, I'm like this is very odd. These people aren't interacting with real things. What is this sorcery? Right. It's it doesn't doesn't feel real. Uh, Attack of the Clones would get a lot of uh feedback for basically the same thing where you know oh everything around them is a blue screen and there's nothing real at all and i, I think people were upset about that the the reduction of use of miniatures and physical props and that turned them against these types of films yeah they... not, not entirely i mean sin city came out a year later and that was a pretty decent hit well sin so... city made it badass sin city had titties and guns and more <laughs> And That's all you need. Just throw some Mickey work in there and they'll be like, this is now art. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's something that's kind of special about Sky Captain is it really did like it was kind of a despite the fact that it bombed, it was kind of a palate cleanser. I feel after Attack of the Clones, like people didn't like this movie, but it helped acclimate them to the idea that green screen and blue screen movies were a thing that could exist side by side with the other stuff instead of this weird, who do they think they are kind of aberration. And when Sin City came out a year later, that really cemented it. That's when the horses were let out of the gates. Yeah, I think the blending technologies are, <laughs> as a novice on, on this whole thing, I don't know the proper terms for how they, they managed to get everyone to look like they're actually standing in these digital shots. But the, as the technology improved, I think people became more comfortable with it as well. Even if you look at something like Peter Jackson's King Kong, which had a, an astronomical budget, folks complained like, hey, a, a lot of this doesn't feel real. Like during the stampede, it's like everyone complains about the stampede scene in, in King Kong, how it doesn't feel like anyone's actually anywhere near a real item. They're 
people running in a giant green room. But nowadays, hell, if you look at like any Marvel film, those are pretty much like ninety percent uh, the same deal. Like they they don't just make outer space. <laughs> so no, there's it, scenes that Civil War is practically sky captain at a certain point, especially when you oh, get yeah. to the uh, the airport fight. Yeah, it's gotten more and more common now with the uh, bigger budget films. It's just easier to control the environments and all the variables by doing it yourself in your own digital area. So time has proven Sky Captain out in that sense. They were ahead of the curve, I think, in how productions were being managed. Or hell, look at basically anything from Troublemaker Studio. Like, besides Sin City, anything those guys make, like the, the Spy Kids series, are, are done in that same sense, where the, the cost of entry is so much lower if I just do it all on my own land. So we'll just digitally make it up and paint the whole thing on a computer which is kind of fascinating. It opens up a whole new area for people to start making things because they don't have to worry about getting, you know, grants or not grants, but uh, licenses from uh, counties to go film in weird spots. They don't have to pay astronomical fees to go rent out a lot somewhere. It opens up a lot of possibilities being able to do this kind of thing. Sky Captain came out in a, in a I think, a weird climate for film at the time. There was nothing wide release-wise that was that stylized. People ha so people hadn't quite adjusted to that. There were stylized films, but they were smaller. You know, the big blockbuster action movies weren't like that. Especially when you have throwback stuff, which historically tends not to do that well, except on certain mm -hmm. occasions. See, the 90s tried to do that with, with some tentpole stuff and didn't quite work out for one reason or another. And 2004 was a weird time in regards to CGI in film in that it had that's when kind of cgi i think balloon burst a little bit because it be, had become so overabundant and not just because of attack of the clones and whatnot there was such use of it to the point oh, yeah. there was a lot of conversations going on about how necessary some of it was and i mean that's where that's around the time those conversations started that we are still having to this day yeah. I remember how prevalent it was to see reviews during the early 2000s that had to spend several paragraphs talking about the clunky effects. If you're doing a genre film, they'd have to be like, now the mummy too, a little silly, but boy, the Scorpion King does not look good. And let's dive into this. Yeah, it, It's kind of a weird relic now because we're at the point where normally CGI is pretty damn good with maybe a few clunky moments. So it becomes a, like a footnote in a review instead of a main focus point. We've kind of moved past that being a point for critics to even give a damn about. It's it's pretty much normal as as any other thing you'd comment on. But when Sky Captain was coming out, there you know behind the scenes stuff promoting the film, showing showing actors sitting on nothing that would then become a chair in post. You know, no real props. Though there are actually some sets in the film, but almost all created in post, all created digitally. And I think a lot of people took an exception to that as this being a next step too far. I will say I very much felt that watching the movie again the other day, when one of the scientists is destroyed by a laser beam and his skeleton falls on the ground, it's a CGI skeleton. I, I, I was like, no, it's too much. The robots were acceptable, <laughs> but the fake bones I will not have. Fake it's skeletons. Too CGI skeletons never look here. good. They don't. That's that's where I draw the line in the sand. Horror movies always, always try to use like fake blood instead of CGI blood and always try and get real bones. Still the worst effect in Spider-Man. Dig up the bones from the ground. <laughs> Just put them into the movie that way. <laughs> Nothing falls correct in CGI. 
No. Also, uh, most people don't realize this because they think it was something made up for cartoons, but when a real skeleton falls on the ground, it sounds exactly like a collapsing xylophone. And most movies don't put that effect in. It, it's not convincing. It's not real. And that was Cody talks about skeletons. <laughs> I want more movies where people collapse into like xylophone parts. All right. That's... <laughs> I'm laughing now just thinking about the possibilities. Oh, Could that child's if they did dead. That? It's <laughs> so joyous. Oh, can we recut Infinity War so that after the snap, instead of turning to ashes, everyone becomes a skeleton that then falls down? I like this a lot. Or to make it simpler, we could just put in the sound effect of uh, a guitar string snapping. I, I like these ideas. I think we can make films better. Yeah, we could, this yeah. This is our Sky Captain moment. <laughs> to go but, back uh, to a point Mike mentioned before, though, about the weird transition period we had when it came to CGI art- artistry. Another film that comes to mind is 2004's A Series of Unfortunate Events, which was very stylized and ended up not really going over that well with audiences. Like, uh, that one had a much higher budget. That was that was somewhere over $100 million, and it didn't really recoup all of that. But I think that was another case where audiences didn't quite feel like seeing things that were hyper-stylized in 2004, specifically. Uh, well, well, I do like that movie, for the most part. That does have a lot of other problems. It's got Jim Carrey gold in it. <laughs> yeah, I think people people were only responding to stylized stuff that had been sold to them properly. Things like the Lord of the Rings movies or the Harry Potter movies, which were just starting up. In addition to that, you gotta look at the time period this came in. In 2004, we were still very much in the hangover, in the hangover period of the 90s, which we still hadn't quite shaked off. And the biggest thing about the late, about the late 90s was irony. Because this movie is a throwback that is 100% unironic. Oh, it's very sincere. It, and, this is clearly from a bunch of people that just loved old school serials and just wanted to make their own version of that. Yeah, I don't, Not I even don't, an evolution or commentary of it. They wanted to make that and just <laughs> use current technology to make it happen. Yeah, and people, audiences really didn't know how to respond to that. Like, people wanted, they didn't want Black Dynamite. They wanted Undercover Brother. Like, if you were going to sell them a throwback, even a comedic throwback, it had to be 100% in scream mode. Also, it's it's amazing because if you watch Sky Captain, you realize how much filming styles and editing styles have evolved since the 40s. I think many people were probably turned off from Sky Captain because it feels oddly slow. But then you realize the shots are very long. They're They're holding on everything. The camera moves slowly when it pans. It's... So different from anything made in the last few years where they're using a lot of very fast cuts to try and give it a more dynamic feel to the action. This is letting everything play out in front of the screen without a lot of uh, massaging it to make it seem like it's more hip than what's going on, which is so, so odd. Like you, you think of old movies and you don't think of the trends that were used to edit and create them. They function so differently. Yeah, very much so. Another thing that... Uh... I've come to appreciate and watching it uh, over the years, becoming a, a lot more film literate. Like this movie is painstakingly, almost to its detriment, just a tribute to those uh, old serials and comic strips done in the style of both in the style of like of those serials and also with a lot of just general golden age Hollywood stuff, like the relationship. Uh, between Joe and Polly is extremely Nick and Nora Charles. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, 
Sky Captain isn't drinking as much as he flies around the world. Well, he has that milk of magnesia. It's true. Just imagine if you just put a bunch of vodka in there. Now we're talking. <laughs> and Jude Law and Paltrow are able to really sell that. I mean, I feel like in in the hands of actors that didn't quite get the material, those two characters could have been unfathomably unlikable and difficult to watch because they spend the overwhelming majority of the movie sniping at each other. But like as we see later from Paltrow in the Iron Man films, nobody can bicker entertainingly <laughs> with a leading man quite like her. Well, Jude Law really knows how to undercut the material. He plays everything a little more flatly than you'd expect. I could see a lot of people auditioning for a movie like this and trying to put on a pastiche of the 40s where they're doing maybe like a transatlantic drawl or, or shouting things or saying their lines a little too fast to try and mimic, you know, films from the 40s and 50s. But he disregards most of that and, and plays it much more naturally, I think, which is a little confusing to some viewers probably because everything else in the film is decidedly artificial. Well, that's the thing about adventure movies of that time period that I think is kind of lost on the, on our generation because the way we think back to movies like that, oh, it's like big, ridiculous, square-jawed action heroes that are full of one-liners and pep, and everyone around them is smaller in comparison. But Joe, like those heroes, is kind of just the straight man. Yeah. He was rarely ever the male lead who was the character going around being animated and uh, drawing the viewer's empathy. It was usually the female lead. Like Women were the ones who were usually relied upon to be funny and be the audience point of view character. The male was mostly there to be stoic. And goddamn, can no one be chill and stoic quite like Chudla. <laughs> I think the problem is everyone thinks of old films like they're Frank Capra things. So there's like, yeah. James Stewart running around screaming lines like it's a wonderful life. Well, that's where you get they gave they gave the actors a lot of homework of, of old films to to study. And that's where you also get the genius of even casting Paltrow and Law, which are their, you know, they're classic movie fans in the two of them. So they understand the reality of those those type of pictures more than anybody. Then you have the homework they were given to they're actually studying look at what those performances and what those tones and moods were actually like. And, you know, it's, it's, this is to uh, sci-fi um, serials is what Indiana Jones was to, to adventure serials. And Indi Indiana Jones is kind of the same way where the, those characters were incredibly stoic and in incredibly still, uh, and then would kind of bounce out with life. Um, and you look at a lot of other stuff that goes back to serials from around the time of Indiana Jones, like, you know, Flash Gordon stuff, and they're, you know, they're gigantic, and they're silly cartoons, and they, they get a feeling of them, but they're more of just remembrances of what those things were like. They're, they're not really indicative of what they actually were. Then you go to Indiana Jones, where these were clearly made by people who, who are literate in, in that kind of cinema. So it, it feels authentic, but it also, uh, it doesn't feel like a pastiche. It, it doesn't feel like something that's from another time. It just feels like uh, a, a new kind of genre or another entry in that genre. And Sky Captain functions much the same way uh, because of, much the of many of the same factors. It just feels, I think, what really threw people is it's more 
it works more as a throwback because of the stylization of it because of those effects because you have these super stylized uh almost you know animated to look kind of animated robots stomping around um, because that was the style they were going for so it feels more like something from the from the 30s or the 40s that you're watching than Indiana Jones, which just feels like a movie you're watching in the in the 80s. And I think that really threw people off. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, audiences in the early 2000s had the uh, the savviness at that point to know that certain movies you had to enter into with a very specific mindset. Like people are really savvy about that stuff these days, but like we were just right at the cusp of that really becoming a thing pretty pretty much with Sin City a year later. Yeah, and this is only two years after Spider-Man. Oh yeah. Well that was this movie came out in such an interesting time for film because I didn't realize that these movies were clustered so closely together, but one year one year earlier we got the saddest music in the world and down with love and then just a couple of years after that we got the good german so like there was this weird period in the early to mid 2000s where directors were fascinated by doing pitch perfect deep cut throwback movies yeah black and white became very prevalent for a little while as well yeah that kind of peaked with good night and good luck it's like well we got our awards let's (laughs) let's wrap this up on a high note it didn't come back again until <laughs> uh, the artist. Yeah, pretty much. And God, the, look at the year this came out. And this came out the same summer as Spider-Man 2 and The Incredibles. Like, God damn, what a year to be going to the movies. Yeah, that also shows people were in a very different mode. Like, their big kind of stylized CGI blockbuster movie was Spider-Man. Like, that's kind of the headspace everybody was in. It's very much when the 90s did the throwback pulp stuff with the Shadow, the Rocketeer, the Phantom, and all that. But for that kind of film, everyone, what was in everybody's heads was Batman. So it's just, it's working in the total opposite direction. And there wasn't a breadth of things like there are now. Nowadays, uh, people would expect something like Sky Captain to come along, uh, right alongside uh i know a superhero movie or in a big action movie uh maybe a big studio comedy like all these things coming out at once a big animated movie of all different types of genres and stylizations and tones at the time it it was too different too fast definitely so it's like it's ironic that this movie is a throwback to the 30s because it's very much out of time (laughs) and uh, one thing i want to get into uh before we stray uh, stray too far away from the the film's themes and just what exactly made this special. The story for how this movie was made is incredible to me. Like you look at a movie like this and you're like, okay, clearly this is something like Tales from the Crypt. Like this was a passion project by a super producer, or like this was like a script that was floating around for 20 years and finally somebody got the money together to make it. It was actually written in 1935. They forgot <laughs> it in a drawer somewhere. Someone's house cleaning a house that a studio went, what the fuck is, oh God, we didn't make it. Oh no. Oh, it's like that lost episode of Twilight Zone that got made in the 90s. <laughs> but, uh, same exact thing. But no, this was just made by two brothers who 
really, really liked old Fleischer Superman shorts. So it's the same origin story as Cuphead. Essentially, yeah. Like, Carrie and Kevin Conran are fascinating dudes. Like, Kevin is an incredible artist in his own right, and Carrie was just another dude working at Cal Arts who just got a wild hair up his ass and decided to spend seven years of his life, like six or seven, just putting together a six-minute show reel. Like, he and his brother just teamed up and spent a significant portion of their life doing a pitch for a movie they would then spend several years of their life <laughs> struggling to get made. And, okay, this is the most, like, baller shit I have ever heard from, like, a struggling indie director trying to get something off the ground. They made, like, they did not just show the movie to, to potential investors or producers. They made them gift boxes, which they invested a significant amount of money in. These ornate, old-timey boxes where you'd open it up and there'd be the gigantic Sky Captain one-sheet that Kevin had made that looks just like an old serial poster. And then inside there would be a single VHS tape with the words <laughs> Sky Captain and the mechanical monsters written on it. You'd pop that in, and you'd see that fucking short. Like, this I, artifact from another time. I think they went a little too far with the ones that opened up and just uh, irradiated people. Like, just gamma radiation <laughs> came out and melted skin. That was a little uh, much, but it did well, cause everything to me deadly. Yes, exactly like that. Kevin, I appreciate the, the chutzpah, but did you have to fill it with polio? <laughs> <laughs> it's been unleashed. You can't stop it now. Yeah, I think they said they made about... 23 of these at great expense and time and they only ever ended up giving out one to producer john avnet who took one look at that movie and was like no i'm, I'm gonna spend the next few years of my life trying to get this made and uh something that was originally going to be just a small three million dollar passion project that would maybe play at some festivals or maybe just go to direct to vhs ballooned and ballooned and ballooned until suddenly Jude Law and Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow were interested and they were getting all of this money and they bumped the schedule back in six months to release it into the summer instead of awards season. So they had to crunch even harder, which resulted in hiring more people, which cost more money and more money and more money and more money, and more money to the point where... Let's see if I can pull up the exact number. Yeah. Five. <laughs> Kevin said they pitched $3 million. They planned $20 million. By the time the movie was released, it cost them $70 million. And that, unfortunately, unfortunately, was kind of the undoing of the movie as well. Because if they had kept it under budget, it would have made everything back and been considered a success. But the studio pushed so hard for this to be the next big thing in the season where everybody wanted their Lord of the Rings, their Harry Potter, their Spider-Man, that they fucked the movie completely. And uh, Kevin has never gone out to actually say anything negative, really, about the production of the film or of the budget, but he has said, I have no idea where the $50 million went. And I don't trust that number. 
it turns out Angelina Jolie's jetpack was real. They actually did a lot of R&D for that one little stunt, and that was the one real piece of uh, equipment in the film. Very expensive. Well, she did have – she was the only person who had her own bubble helmet. Everyone else had to share one. <laughs> it's like the most Angelina Jolie yeah. No, no. She gets her own special spacesuit just for her. They only had her for like three days, right? She was filming like a Tomb Raider or something at the same time, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. And we are in peak fake British Angelina Jolie season at that time oh, as well. Yeah. Th- that, that's how of its time this movie is. There's a dramatic shot of a floating helicarrier with a gigantic Union Jack on it. Oh, my God. Who is in charge of this operation? Angelina Jolie. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> she's the mo- She's cinema's version of British. close enough (laughs) but uh yeah i find that really fascinating that it's entirely possible that either through incompetence or just someone pocketing the money this movie ended up going insanely over budget and fucking itself well you always have to wonder with hollywood budgets what's reported how accurate that is or even close to accurate or how much of it's you know just studio accounting where it's been fudged to you know make a tax break or something it's it's so tough to say like just because i go on wikipedia and it says the budget was 70 million does not mean that's a real number someone could have just been saying that and it gets repeated over and over again where eventually it becomes reality i it's so hard to trust any numbers online and it does sound like with it definitely ballooned to something but it it sounds yeah. like its studio it, it had nothing to do with the production really like it's studio and producer fuckery i feel like i don't know i feel like the director at this point who has done nothing uh because of this film um you know would mention something wrong about the production in that in that regard but he seems to be just <laughs> yeah, confused when you go from 20 to 70 million dollars i think he'd probably notice if it was on on the set yeah yeah I was curious about that, but apparently pretty much since the movie bombed, uh, Carrie Conran at this point just refuses to talk about it. The only one anyone can seem to get for interviews is Kevin, who just kind of implies stuff, but doesn't want to say anything negative. It's Especially since people have come around on the movie in the last few years. Since it's developed its own cult following, it's it's too bad because you know you'd have to hope that the guy realizes he has fans. Yeah, you know, if you were to show this movie now, I'm not saying it would go and do successfully at the box office, but if you played it like the Alamo, you could get sold out showings of this. You get people that would show up with Sky Captain posters begging for autographs from the director. Oh yeah, you they- could probably sell like a collector's edition of this through Shout that would do well. I'd have to imagine. I definitely think so. I, they say that they still to this day get people every month sending emails or stopping one of them on the street to say, I fucking love that movie. Thank you so much for giving it to me. Which I always, is, I always feel bad because you, you, you see like films that have bombed in the past and the directors just assume, oh, well, I didn't win that one. And they move on with their careers only for the film to come back around to them later on. And every time there's like a special edition Blu-ray and they get a director for, for something that, you know, flopped 30 years ago. It's so it's so sweet to hear the director like I didn't know people liked this thing. They do like it though. Just just to hear that they people appreciate their film eventually. It's always kind of rewarding. I, it gives me warm fuzzies. 
especially when uh, I mean, if you're just focusing on your own career, it's it's easy to lose track of that stuff. I mean, look at John Carpenter, you know, like made some of the greatest films at all, of all time. But whenever he looks back on a lot of them, it's just, yeah, well, people didn't like that one. <laughs> He's kind of like shake him and say, no, God damn it. You changed the world. And Conrad is an especially kind of um, a sad tale because you, uh, we were talking about this last night. Conrad directed this um, Coca-Cola commercial in like 2006, I think it was. Um, and I was checking it out and it's this and it's a, I mean, it's a fucking commercial, but it's beautiful looking. It, it's impeccably made um, and has, you know, some effects you'd expect almost out of sky captain Not, nothing you know old-timey stylized but you can you can tell it's made by that hand and the most impressive thing is you look at this guy who did all these effects all this can do all this post stuff is really into all this new technology but you look at that commercial he's made one movie you look at that commercial and you go i know who directed this and not oh, because yeah. of the stylization of the special effects, the way the camera moves, the way it's positioned, the direction of scenes, the uh, how the emotion of the actual piece is played out and how the story plays out. It's incredible to me. You can watch a director who's made 10 movies and you maybe you can't really tell what hand is behind the camera necessarily. Not as a bad thing, but, you know, they're, they're for... Every, you know, Coen Brothers movie where you can tell, like, in five seconds, okay, that's a Coen Brothers movie. There's there's another, everything kind of just looks different every time or just looks the same. Well, it comes out of control, too. If if you look at, like, a really stylized director and then they go to work on a TV show, like, I, I think Rob Zombie directed a couple episodes of CSI. And I don't think you'd be able to easily tell, oh, that's a Rob Zombie thing. Yeah. But if you watch his movies, you can definitely tell, oh, that's a Rob Zombie thing very easily. So it's, it's a shame when people with creative aspirations kind of get hampered down by a system that is scared of the amount of risk they pose. I think, I think that's kind of the magic of directors like Conrad. When your sensibilities are pull, being pulled from a completely different source than most other people's, then yeah, you can pull them out of a lineup like that. It makes their stuff uh, instantly idiosyncratic. Really, his big problem, though, was during the Coca-Cola commercial, the close-up of the can, Pepsi, and that just fucked him over. For, for <laughs> no. years, he's been in the doghouse for that, that That's one what put mistake. him in the movie jail. I it, had yeah. one job! Uh, God, there's actually paid product placement for 7-Up in, in Sky Captain, and he kept replacing it by mistake with Asia, and the studio was living. <laughs> that was going to make back the budget. That's where the extra $50 million went, just trying to CGI seven up into the background so they could try and gain their money back this was gonna do for seven up what et did to reese's what raisins did for back to the future <laughs> other way around yeah i think that's uh i think it's gonna be go down as one of the biggest shames of modern movie making that those brothers just didn't hit it and ran into bad luck at pretty much every turn in their uh, post Sky Captain career, mostly just due to the fact that they're ca just kind of two nerdy dudes. Like by their own admission, they don't network, they don't do Hollywood things. They were the toast of nerd director Hollywood for a while after making Sky Captain. Like 
they were invited to a Skywalker Ranch director summit with Rodriguez and Zemeckis. Uh, see, and that's, Brad that's what Bird. gets me. They they got to apparently know those people in some capacity, and those guys are all about independent filmmaking. You, it's like, come on, give a guy a bone, help these dudes out. Well, yeah. That's the thing, Kevin. Uh, in his last interview, Kevin flat out said, "Yeah, we were really dumb and just never asked for anybody's phone number and never tried to contact any of those people again uh, because we were just kind of embarrassed to be there because." They're gods, and who are we? It's like that's and that that's so maddening because it's like no, just if you could have been one of Zemeckis's guys, if they just MySpace friended all of those people, we could be living in a much different world. And it's it's both frustrating and also kind of endearing to just think of them going, oh shit, we didn't get George Lucas's phone number, did we? <laughs> God damn it, Gary! Not again. To add on to it, though. While it doesn't help their career out in any way, having one film that's got critical regard and cult status, I, I think kind of bolsters your own mythology. Just, just It's kind of like an, an airplane over the sea type situation. Like there was that one album and then they disappeared. Future generations are going to look at that and, and kind of mythologize what's happening here. And I think maybe appreciate it a little extra because it's so special. It's their only attempt at movie making. You got to cherish it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but- there's a very beautiful moment in Carrie Conran's commentary where the second the credits roll and you see that final title card, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, directed by Carrie Conran, he just kind of pauses and says, you just watched 10 years of my life. And he's not rueful about that. He is bursting with pride because... Every single frame of this movie is filled with love. I'm glad he didn't say that and then like slam down a bottle of whiskey or something because that would have given it a much darker <laughs> connotation. It's not the repo, the genetic opera commentary. <laughs> Ten years of my life. Boy, I can't imagine being that dedicated to something. That's yeah. astonishing to me. Like I, I think of stuff all the time and then I put like a month into it and I go, ah, that's work. And then I stop. <laughs> Like, to, to actually be so dedicated to put a decade of your life into one project and make it come to fruition deserves appreciation. And plus, just, just thinking, too, the longer this movie goes, the more I think people will like it because it becomes out of step with current-day expectations of what cinema is. Oh, it, yeah. It can feel more like what it was trying to represent. You know, it, a kid who's born today and watches this in 15 years isn't probably going to make the same distinctions. Like, it's already a super old movie to me. And they'll be able to just enjoy the movie on its own terms and, and be like, hey, there are ray guns. There's giant robots that look like people. There's uh, an evil robot woman with an electro staff. There's all sorts of wacky, cool stuff happening here that kids would probably be all about. The planes actually flap their own wings. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, we've, uh, we've talked about some of the, uh, the sadder things concerning the legacy of this movie. But uh, before we wrap, we've got to just run down all of the magical magical things that are contained in this nine these 90 minutes of runtime this is a movie where technically Laurence Olivier and Bai Ling share the the screen <laughs> cyborg Bai Ling right, this is a movie where the hero goes to an evil mad scientist base on Monster Island, ooh! 
in a sequence that came from Stan Winston. Also, the bad guy's name is the most bad guy name out there. I know. <laughs> I love Hulk. Like, okay, Deadhead, sure, perfect. That's, yeah, that'll be the bad guy. No, nothing sinister about that name. I fucking love that this is the movie where we finally got an evil German man named Totenkopf. <laughs> the evilest word in all of German. And it's Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> Brought back from the dead using science. Apropos of nothing, but one time in German class, uh, <laughs> one of the other students found out the word for dead was tot. And just, like, decided that was the only word they needed to know for the rest of German class. So for weeks, they would basically just go around. Instead of learning new vocab, they would just say shit like, S is tote. And that's that's all they would want to say. <laughs> they wouldn't even figure out, like, how to say other forms of dead. <laughs> that was all they wanted. I'm surprised they had the, the restraint to not re respond to everything with totes. I'm glad it's many years past the point, or else you could be giving them terrible ideas. <laughs> I'm doing that from now on. Totes. Can we call Tote from um, fucking uh, Raiders Totes from now on? Yes. Can we just overdub Captain America, the first Avenger? Like, anytime the Red Skull is talking, all his lines are just Totes. <laughs> and like, in this movie, like, in addition to Monster Island, like, this is a film that gives us an aerial dogfight with giant Superman robots. We get, like, again, a, a flying helicarrier in the sky, ran by Angelina Jolie. Before Nick Fury did it. Thank you very much. I and know. then she just kind of jetpacks out of that movie after, like, two <laughs> scenes. We get a Bride of Frankenstein-esque scene of a tiny elephant in a jar created... For seemingly no reason other than science. Just imagine how much easier the whole art thing would be if all the animals were tiny. It makes perfect sense. We get an actor who is certainly not Alan Rickman, though he's trying to be. <laughs> announced to gal reporter Gwyneth Paltrow that Totenkopf is coming for me. <laughs> or being murdered mysteriously by Android Biling as... The mysterious lady. <laughs> we goddamn get Michael Gambon as Perry White, essentially. For one scene, because this movie just adds cameos like there's sprinkles on a Sunday. Just, mmm. Old. <laughs> <laughs> and Angelina Jolie says, alert the amphibious squadron. Nothing <laughs> can ever take that away. Fly underwater. There's like a dogfight under the sea. Like, you could... Like, she could make a thousand Maleficents. I don't care. She said alert the amphibious squadron in a fake British accent. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, this uh, is like imagination, the motion picture experience. Yeah, that was something... Like, I was kind of looking around for which critics didn't shit on this movie. I was very happy to see Roger Ebert 100% got it and compared it very much to Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think he specifically said this movie, is, since Raiders, this is the closest I've seen to someone just pouring their imagination onto the screen. I think that is a very apt description. Oh, yeah. It's ironically the same thing we would get years later with a completely different tone from the Venture Brothers. Like, I, mean, I know you always say, Mike... 
that's like the best description of this show I've ever heard. Venture Brothers is one long conversation with two dudes about all of the things they're into. <laughs> yeah. And Carrie and Kevin Conran are very Doc Hammer and Jackson Public in in that regard. Like, you feel like you know them by the time you're done with this movie. Very much so. And for all of the stuff in this film that exists to be a throwback, that exists to reference uh, things that came before, it actually does have a very modern theme to it in its choice of villain and how Totenkopf is ultimately portrayed. Like, the villain of this movie isn't Laurence Olivier. The villain is Automation. Like, it's so appropriate that the movie begins with old-timey giant robots because that's the uh, the concentrated version of everything that is evil in the world of this movie. All of our characters are so fallible and so human. And at the end of the day, even Totenkopf, the evil, inhuman, Nazi mad scientist. I mean, he's not a Nazi, but he's German, so close. Like he's just a corpse in a chair with a note that says, forgive me. Like the, the only thing that's evil in this film is the gigantic unstoppable machine that's still running years and years after its master disowned it. And I think that's a very modern idea. Like it's something that was very much a concern in the thirties and in that area. That's what a lot of uh, speculative science fiction was worried about, but it's in this film it's tackled with a very modern eye like those stories were the fear of of automation this story is somebody from our time looking back and saying you were very frightened and you kind of had a reason to because we don't live in your world of tomorrow but we live in a world of tomorrow and a lot of the stuff that's scary there is scary here but just with a different coat of paint Something I come to appreciate more and more every time I watch the movie is its imperfection of humanity versus the perfection of automation. And, you know, I, I, I can't think of many, many speculative science fiction that plays up, that plays up those themes against each other in such a way that Sky Captain does. Because at, at face value, you can see that uh, Polly and Joe are sniping at one another or, you know, kind of shitty to one another and, and each have their problems because, you know, old-timey movie. People were kind of, you know, imperfect back then and always had these these tropes about them. When now you can... You, when it's actually using that style of character against the the science fiction theme of automation to actually show the imperfection of humanity ultimately wins out and is kind of beautiful on its own. It's why Polly it's perfectly summed up at the end when Polly turns away from the beautiful site for her, that she wants to take a picture of her story and just takes a photo of, of Joe. And it turns out her lens cap was on the whole time. Perfect Ooh. button joke. Yeah. I always like for years, like I thought I love this movie why is that the ending of the movie? That's such a weird joke to end on. It's only in the last couple of viewings, I was like, oh, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. <laughs> that is the movie in a single line. 
Of course she had the lens caps lens cap on. <laughs> of course even this moment of humanity is fucked up. Because that's what humans do. We fuck up. Which really is the best way to end anything. <laughs> there is no joy, only fuck ups. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we wrap, I do want to mention one thing I found in the research to this episode, which I think I had heard a little bit whenever, about it whenever this was first happening, but I never knew that it went into any kind of development. I thought it was just in talks, which is Carrie and Kevin were going to direct a series of Princess of Mars movies for Paramount back whenever they had the rights. They got as far as doing a proof of concept sizzle reel, which you can check out online. It's incredible. Like they, their head was very much in the right place. And like with Sky Captain, you could tell they absolutely loved the material and really wanted to do it justice. Unfortunately, uh, there was a change of studio heads, so the movie got nixed, which was very unfortunate because I know Kevin at least has said if that didn't happen, they would have just spent the next decade making John Carter movies, which, God, could you imagine that world? No, it's too pure. <laughs> but uh, that was uh, kind of an ironic thing to find out is that their pitch for that movie ended up by accident or just through some form of osmosis being very, very similar to a movie we'll be discussing next time on How I Learned to Love the Bombs. But that's a story for another time. And now we're immediately canceled. The show is done. You'll never get another episode. Gotcha, bitches. <laughs> and there's the beans. And there's the beans as we ride off into the sunset. On bombs to explode red China. Mike, no, we can't get political. Too late! <sighs> it was a tiny explosion. Oh, just a little one. Just just a spoonful of explosion. Snuck out. It. It's John Carter. We're talking about John Carter next time. Oh, oh. There's really no point in teasing that since, you know, I said the name earlier, but just if there was any ambiguity there, it's uh, it's John Carter. So oh, get ready. I, I thought it was Looney Tunes back in action. Yeah, me too. How are we getting John Carter? If only there was an audio version of the raising the finger up in protest and then putting it back down meme. Oh, I just figured, like, Mike was going to insert a slide whistle after I said my last line. I thought it would be like a rim board. shot, and we would move into me saying, Hey, folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of Box Office Pulp on our very own website, www.boxofficepulp.com. <laughs> or you can look us up on iTunes. We are on Twitter, on Facebook. You just type in Box Office Pulp, and we'll probably show up. We might even be at your house now waiting for you. You've opened the box, and it's too late to put us back. Anyways, folks, this has been, let me say it one more time, Box Office Pulp. Thanks for joining us. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And now we go back to talking about beans. Let me tell you about Garbanzos. 
Oh, fuck yeah. Garbanzos. Garbanzos are pretty bean. fucking good. You know what's really agree, hard man. to that's do? A, that's a champion of bean. Yeah. Uh, Goya. A champion bean. A champion. Goya beans are very good. Like Goya. Goya yeah, and no, uh, dip. Dip, like with lemon juice, super fucking good. There's few beans I'm not a fan of, to be honest. And you can serve them in most ways. Like baked beans are really good. Barbecued beans are delicious. Yeah. I feel like I'm turning into a Forrest Gump sketch, but really, there's like a million ways to make beans, and they're all good. Go to your Caribbean living Forrest Gump, Gump sketch. Mm -hmm. Now I just want beans. Real talk. Why haven't beans been incorporated into pizza yet? <laughs> I want a I pizza. Mean, fuck you. I could. I could see it. <laughs> fuck. All right. All right. You. No, you want to try it now, don't you? You want to go get some chili beans and no. slather them all over a pizza. Oh, no, no. And I was this close to trying calamari pizza, and I still regret that I didn't. But fuck you. Some things are sacred. This is going to hold in your head, Mike. And, and years from now, you're going to be standing in a kitchen holding a can of refried beans going, oh, I've got that extra pizza crust I'm not doing anything with. Okay, you didn't say anything about refried beans. I could probably design a fucking taco pizza. Ah, now Mike we're on a taco pizza. Yes, now we're on the same page. All right, I'll put a I'll put a document together with fucking some graphs and shit. We'll figure this out. We'll figure this out, and then I will design it, and then I will make it. I have a pizza oven. I can do this. All right. Well, I think like you could just start with a normal crust, and then you just use the refried beans for the sauce, um, and and then you know just like some sort of queso for the cheese. Uh, I would personally avoid all lettuce on this thing. But that's just me. I, I fucking hate lettuce on my tacos or burritos. Why do I feel like this is all going to result in 20 years from now, Jude Law entering Mike's Pizzeria and seeing your mummified corpse with a note that says, Who gives a pizza? Forgive me. <laughs> I horror as all of these automatons construct terrible, terrible pizzas. It's just a note that says, forgive me. But I'm, I'm wearing like a full t-shirt and hat combo for a pizza. <laughs> advertisement beans like, no no beans no there. no you ruined it you ruined it with the over pun <laughs> no i've been saying beans for a couple of minutes now you guys rolled with it then you can roll with it now then i kick you out man <laughs> to our viewers at home please don't copyright beansa before we have a chance to try it out and find out if this is any good quick cody register beansa.com beansa i'm gonna look this up online do you think there's a beansa if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, Cody, you cannot copyright a pizza. Uh, unfortunately, okay, so I typed in Beanza, and the first thing that popped up is there is a at Jenna a bean, uh, hashtag uh, Beanza on Twitter. Uh, I, don't, I don't know anything about her, but she's using Beanza because of her name, I guess. Uh, there's That's not the same. Beanza, app store for Android. There's a Beanza app already? Already? Like somebody comes to your house and throws beans onto your pizza? All right. Beansa has 62 tweets, 34 followers. Uh, I think I we can really... hammer these guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd feel bad about taking it from her, but it's like, we need this. We need to spread the beanses. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid she's just going to have to fucking die. I'm sorry. We're, we're taking over. Send out the beansa robots. All right. Also, there is there is a Beansa app on Amazon, and I want to see what the fuck this is. I imagine someone walks into her bedroom, and she's dead on the bed, covered in refried beans, like a fucking gold woman from <laughs> Goldfinger. <laughs> what a horrifying way to die. Shit drowned in beans. Well, you know, some people might think that was okay. It turned out, though, we, we covered her in refried beans. It didn't kill her, so we just had to fucking strangle her while she was covered <laughs> in refried beans, and she was slippery. Uh, this is awkward. 
okay, so I tried again. This time, Bean, then ZZA instead of a single Z. Uh, and the first response was a subreddit about beans in things. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm turning the recorder off. <laughs> this is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now, please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.